You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Communications Workers Local 6360 and Painters and Allied Trades District Council 3. CWA Local 6360 represents workers who build and maintain AT&T's communications network and 911 dispatchers in Jackson County and Independence who make sure citizens get the life-saving help they need. Local 6360 also represents union printers and screen printers in Kansas City and St. Joseph as well as technicians at Mood Media. And the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades District Council 3, fighting for working families since 1916. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, we have an inspiring story of retirement. After 31 years at the post office, Willa Robinson turned her passion for reading into a gem of a bookstore uplifting black history, music, and culture, Willa's Books and Vinyl. Then, Biden's Labor Department wants to make it easier to classify gig workers as employees. What effect will that have on labor and the economy? We'll talk to Dr. Patricia Campos Medina of Cornell's Worker Institute. In the news... Lots of labor-related bills introduced for the start of the Missouri legislative session. And Iowa and Wisconsin UAW workers at CNH are on strike since last May. Our feature at the end of the show is remember our struggle with Ariana Blockman about the 1990 Capitol crawl for the ADA. And now for the news. Now news from our side, January 12, 2022. Just because rail workers were barred from striking and forced to accept inferior contracts doesn't mean it's all over. Many unions are still mad. The Western Massachusetts Area Labor Federation is an example. They voted unanimous, unanimously at their January membership meeting to condemn in the strongest possible terms the Biden administration's conduct in violating fundamental workers' rights 
by forcing an agreement on rail workers that interfered with their right to strike and failed to ensure the basic workplace protection of paid sick leave time for employees. The Labor Federation stated the right to strike is a fundamental human right. Any legislation that denies workers right to strike, whether the bill that Biden signed on December 2nd, the Railway Labor Act of 1926, or Section 9A of the Massachusetts Public Employee Collective Bargaining Law, serves the interest of the bosses over the interest of working class and should be deemed illegitimate. Ian Roadwalt, a drafter of the resolution, said, When government intervenes in union disputes on the side of the billionaire owners, workers across the country take notice and they will not forget. Case New Holland, or CNH, workers in Burlington, Iowa and Racine, Wisconsin, have been on strike since May 2nd, 2022. The company makes industrial and agricultural equipment. There are 700 workers in Wisconsin and 400 in Iowa. Last Saturday, they voted on the company's last best offer and a majority in Iowa agreed to it while a majority in Wisconsin rejected the offer. The workers are represented by the United Auto Workers. Here's a clip from a rally of UAW Local 807 in Iowa last week. Shame on! I'm with 807, Union Local 807. I'm his wife. I'm, I, don't, I don't work, but I'm supporting because this is, this is for our family. This is for our kids. This is for their future. Higher wages, better insurance, affordable insurance. You know, that's, that, that, that rolls downhill to my kids. Absolutely. Our, our oldest kids, um, our oldest is 15, and we have another one that's 14. And it's, you know, only going to be a few more years until they, you know, make it into the world. And we want them to be able to have a good quality of living, good jobs. The, the, the one thing I want to say is these people are a success. They have made billions for this company. They, they have enhanced the community, raised their kids, been good neighbors, volunteered, and the, the people that are raking the profits in are people that have more money than most of us see in several hundred lifetimes, and it's still not enough for them. And they're the failures because these people are still out on strike, and the people that are raking in this money don't care. They fail the workers, they fail this community, and it just shows the more money you have, the more you can fail upward, and we've got to stop that. We thank John McCurley from the University of Iowa Labor Center for that clip. According to the AP, CNH Industrial, based in the United Kingdom, has more than 37,000 employees worldwide. In its most recent earnings report, it reported a profit of $559 million in the third quarter of last year. That's up nearly 22% from the previous year's $460 million net as it increased the prices of its tractors, backhoes, and other equipment. With one local voting to go back to work and the other voting to stay out, the union's resolve, the, the union's resolve and bargaining power has weakened 
and leaders are left to try to pick up the pieces. PAI reports in a decision that could put more money into illegally fired workers' pockets, and that may make bosses think twice about breaking labor law. The National Labor Relations Board has ruled that firing workers must get not just net back pay, but compensation for all the other costs they shouldered to keep themselves and their families alive while battling for their rights and reinstatement. That includes costs such as out-of-pocket medical expenses, credit card debt, and other costs that are direct or foreseeable result of the unfair labor practices by their bosses and employers, NLRB Chairman Lauren McFerrin wrote in the ruling. The board determined compensation for those losses should be part of the standard make-whole remedy for labor law violations, she added in its decision. One of three notable pro-worker judgments the NLRB issued on a 3-2 to two vote just before the holidays. The case was Thrive Incorporated, a marketer of Yellow Pages ads in California. It unilaterally, unilaterally laid off its six outside sales reps, members of IBEW Local 1269, which tried to bargain over the effects of the layoffs. But Thrive never gave the union the information it requested to be able to bargain. Both Missouri and Kansas legislatures convened this week. There are many labor-related bills introduced in Jeff City, some good, some awful. Altogether, the category labor, there are 35 bills. One of the best is Representative Bridget Walsh-Moore of St. Louis and her bill for paid family and medical leave. That's House Bill 673. And Senator Lauren Arthur's Senate Bill 108 repealing many of the bans on the right to abortion. Some of the worst are SB 318, Empowering Missouri Parents Act, aim at disempowering teachers' freedom to teach and free speech. Also, Senate Bill 54, which would introduce county-by-county county right to work, and House Bill 188, requiring the use of E-Verify by all Missouri employers in hiring. That would leave thousands of essential workers unemployed. There are also several bills aimed at weakening workers' compensation. Perhaps the most dangerous to democracy is Republican Speaker Pro Tem Mike Henderson's House Joint Resolution 43, which would gut Missouri's precious initiative petition process by making it almost impossible to win. It would increase the number of signatures required to get the proposal on the ballot, increase the number of congressional districts they must be from, increase the number of votes needed for passage from a majority to two-thirds, and add other disruptive requirements. Next week, we'll cover Kansas. Tonight's news was read by Judy Ansel, Stephen Hill, and I'm Tom Gibkin. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. My name is Chris Mann, and I'm hosting this first part of the program. Um, tonight, we have as a guest Willa Robinson. Willa worked as a postal worker for 31 years and during part of that time, she opened a bookstore. Her passion is reading, and tonight we're going to discuss a person that followed through with her passion and, and uh, put in a lot of uh, hours uh, at work. 
and this part of that simultaneously. I first met Willa through a co-worker who had a deep love and respect for her and her accomplishments. So tonight, um, I want to take a little bit, a little excerpt off her website. Willa's Books and Vinyl was conceived in the heart of Willa Robinson, who developed a love for books and reading at a very early age. In 1994, she started selling her books on 18th and Vine in Kansas City, Missouri as a street vendor. Thank you for being on the show, Willa. Glad to have you. Thank you, Chris, for having me, for uh, allowing me to come on and express my uh, appreciation for black history and the union and all, all of that. Well, it's you that has the uh, accomplishments. Um, so when did you, let's start, maybe, maybe in your life, uh, when did you first realize that reading was your passion? And then when did you make the leap from just reading and the idea of opening a bookstore? And did it come all at once or was it gradual? Uh, no, it, it, it did not come all at once. I, my love for reading started way back when I was like, six or seven, eight years old, something like that. Um, I had a brother who had polio, and so uh, he would not go to school when it when he came of age to go to school. He would not go to school, so uh, they allowed me to go with him. He wouldn't go to school unless I went with him. So I was introduced to books, say, like when I was like five, six years old. He was six. I, mean, I, I was probably five years old when I... Uh, uh, I started going to school with him, and that's where I where I was introduced to books. And uh, during that time, uh, my uh, teacher uh, thought that I read so well that they uh, put me in a higher grade, like uh, I skipped a grade, so which made me. Uh, graduated when I was 16. But uh, all of that happened, but the bookstore and all that, that came way later. Uh, in 1978, I started collecting books. I got saved, I'm a Christian, so I got saved, and so I'm always looking for books on the Holy Spirit. So when uh, I would go to a thrift store or anywhere looking for spiritual books, black books would be there. And so it just drew me into collecting. Well, I collected so many books, my husband said, what you gonna do with these books? Because it was taken over my house, and really, <laughs> it's still taken over my house. <laughs> and so, uh, but anyway, the, in 19, well, in 2007, I opened my first brick and mortar on uh, 5535 Truth Avenue, and I, Opened that because I had the girlfriend who said, let's open a bookstore. And I said, okay. And so that's where it started. Okay. And what types of books do you have now in your bookstore? Let me re read another little excerpt from your uh, website. Visit Willow's Books and browse our inventory of hard-to-find, out-of-print, used, and rare books. 
And then you say the 1619 project should be in every household who wants to know the truth about slavery and its effect it has had on the African American community and beyond. Why uh, did you why did you not focus on best-selling current bestsellers? Well, you can get current bestsellers anywhere. Uh, but my thing was, uh, when I was out there collecting books, it was the older books, older history. Uh, like, um, I just had a, a, a major sale of uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar's books. Uh, and they were like, uh, written, published in uh, 1892, 1893, uh, all the way back there. I didn't even, when I was collecting books, I didn't know uh, some of the authors that I, I was exposed to a lot of authors that I didn't know. I didn't know uh, County Cullen, who is a poet, who was in the uh, Harlem Renaissance. I didn't know uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who was in uh, the Harlem Renaissance. So when I saw collecting books, all of that stuff came together. And it just made me want more and more and more. And so I was always digging in a bookstore, digging in a sale. When I went out of town, I went to uh, thrift stores looking for black books, black history. So that's that's how I got all of those books. Mm -hmm. I also noticed on uh, a visit to your store that you have a, a couple of shelves of banned books. Are you, what is your feeling of banning books? Should books be banned? Well, there may be some books that, that should be banned, but the books that they are banning uh, now, uh, no, I don't think they should be banned. Uh, they want to ban Toni Morrison's Beloved. They want to ban Toni Morrison's uh, Oh, that book. I, it won't come to me, but Anyway, it was her most popular book, or it was her first book. Then they're talking about uh, banning uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Why would you want to do that? Uh, also, there's uh, uh, several books by Morrison, uh, books by um, Alice Walker. And a lot of them are black books. A lot of them are dealing with how we were treated a lot of them were just dealing with how uh, how we grew up and, and the effect of poverty. And slavery is, is an effect of, poverty is an effect of slavery. But anyway, all of that, uh, I just think, and then there's another thing that you, that you said. I think that every household, especially black household, should have the 1619 Project in their homes because it uh, tells us what really happened during slavery. And one of the things that hit me the most was the fact that um, they experimented on the women, they experimented medically on the women without giving them anesthesia. Can you imagine being cut on without an anesthesia? And they did it. Because they thought, we're not human. But anyway. Yeah. 
So, but that's in the 1619 Project. And also in the 1619 Project, it tells why we are so financially behind uh, the uh, mainstream people. Yeah. So thank you. And also uh, some of the medical experiments uh, continued up until 1970. Um, yeah, the uh, well Tuskegee thing, this Tuskegee deal where they uh, experimented with the people on uh, syphilis and all that kind of stuff. And, and then uh, this, uh, this lady that uh, they took her they took her uh, sales, cancel sales or something, made all kinds of money, uh, uh, but they don't, the family didn't get a dime of the money. So that's a, there's a lot of stuff that people need to know, and that's why I have a bookstore, because I think it benefits the community. So then uh, currently, some people, some legislators uh, think it's it's too sensitive to tell children the truth in schools. How do you feel about that, about <laughs> history? There may be some things that uh, uh, elementary kids shouldn't hear right now. But most of all, I think that they should be told the truth. I think it should be told so that they they can know what has happened, why this is going on, why that is going on. I think uh, with knowledge, we perish. The word says we perish for the lack, lack of knowledge. We perish. And that's what has happened to us because we, we don't know all, we, we don't know what is we don't know all the deep stuff that's going on. The uh, syndrome, they, it's called a, a, a syndrome. There's a lady that uh, wrote a book, and I'm re not very good at the name, but she wrote a book about the slave, slave syndrome, what happens, why we are the way we are as a people. And it's, a lot of it has to do with slavery. And, I, and one of the things I draw from that is this. You know, there are people who cannot stand to be in closed places. Uh, they can't stand to be on an elevator mm -hmm. or anything like that. And, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but then, then you think about the people that were placed in these ships, in these close quarters. They could not move. Well, some of that stuff is carried down through our system. Yeah, and and if you carry it to the labor movement, uh, how can you have unity within the labor movement if people don't know each other's history and uh, even well, treat each other with dignity and and. Uh, human humanity so well you have important. to you have to you have to believe that I am human in order to treat me like a human I believe that 
you hurt just like I hurt. I can't stand for you. If somebody was mistreating you, I couldn't stand to look at that because you are just as much a human as I am. And I and and when you when we are treated in inhumane ways, that tells people what well, these people are they're worthless. Uh, I think about you're talking about the labor movement and I wrote some things down. I have been I have I looked at documentaries about children being uh in these in these uh, factories, they're four and five years old, and they are they are working in these factories, and the air you can't hardly breathe, and they're getting up in the morning and going to work, and they're not eating. These are white kids, they, they, you know, in the factories uh, years ago. Well, we worked on the farm. We worked in the farm. Uh, and, the, and we work from sun up to sundown, and we might get a dollar a day. There was no uh, shielding us from the sun. You know, we put on our straw hats if we got one and all that. But we worked 12 hours a day for 2 or $3 a day. And you is, uh, yourself worked, picked cotton, didn't you? I picked cotton, yes. I picked cotton, I chopped cotton. And I'm not ashamed of it. it. It was just something that we did in order to make money. Uh, and going back to the the factories and stuff like that, you do this to a child, and the child is sick, can't breathe, and all this. So that's just an inhumane thing. It's just it's not because uh, of the humanness of it. You don't care about the humanness of it. It's the money thing. It's the power. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're nearing the end of our time. It goes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, don't be sorry. Uh, <laughs> don't talk. We'll you... talk. <laughs> no, you're 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 great. You're fine. So, um, real quick. Uh, what's some of your favorite books you've read? Well, I, I think uh, my favorite book by a black writer is Black Boy by Richard Wright. Richard Wright. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked about how this, when he described the fear that was, that he had because of what he thought was going to happen to him or happened to his parents or happened to his mother. I felt it. There was, I had to put the book down and pick it up later because it was just so, I felt what he said. I felt what he said. The, the next person was, Zora, uh, not Zora, was Taylor Carwell. And she wrote historical novels about, uh, things that way back why why we were having problems with guns and all of how guns became so prevalent in the United States and how uh, wars were started so they could sell guns and sell gunpowder and those people who are rich and millionaires and they're they're still living off all of that 
That's the kind of book she wrote. She, the Captains and the Kings was one of her television books. It was on for several weeks on TV. But, uh, but her stuff was relevant for today. I suggest if you really like to read, but her books are really thick. <laughs> okay, and uh, we we have one minute left, but I wanted to say you're being the curator of music uh, for an event on the 16th. Can you uh -huh. tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, what it is is uh, there was a couple came to me who uh, runs a community center uh, there on 8026 Basea and they they wanted me to come out and do a program of music and the speeches of uh, Martin Luther King because it's Martin Luther King's birthday and uh, so I have put together some of his speeches that I'm going to play on uh, their recorded and I found I found a letter that was sent to, uh, I guess, to the president or the Congress asking for them to give us a Martin Luther King birthday. I got the paper. I found I found awesome. the paper. Yes. And well, so that, was, that was awesome. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Willa, uh, for being on the Heartland Labor Forum and to think of the idea to have a Black-centered bookstore in Kansas City. We thank you so much. Thank you, Chris, for having me. I hope that I did you well. You are well. entirely welcome. Thank you. This Friday, January 13, at 9.30 a.m., Understanding Israel-Palestine begins their series about the Nakba, the Arabic word for catastrophe, used to describe events in 1947 and 1948 when 80% of the Palestinian people were expelled from their land. Listen as refugees recall the events they lived through 75 years ago. That's Understanding Israel-Palestine, Friday at 9.30 a.m. KKFI is the Kansas City area's independent, non-commercial community radio station. We seek to stimulate, educate, and entertain our audience to reflect the diversity of the local and world community and to provide a channel for individuals and groups, issues and music that have been overlooked, suppressed, or underrepresented by other media. And that is the KKFI mission statement. Thank you for listening.
We Do the Work, written and performed by John Fromer, who was a folk singer, labor activist, and television producer. It was the theme song to a long-running PBS show of the same name about America's working class. I'm Mark Galis. Back in October, the U.S. Department of Labor proposed a new rule for the classification of workers. The proposed rule would make it easier to classify gig workers as employees instead of independent contractors, much to the delight of labor and to the chagrin of employers. Joining us to discuss this issue is Dr. Patricia Campos-Medina, Executive Director of the Worker Institute, ILR Cornell University. Dr. Campos-Medina is a policy expert on workplace and labor issues, as well as women's rights, voting rights, and immigration worker justice. She has served in political and legislative director positions for the SEIU and Unite Unions, among others. Dr. Campos-Medina, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. First off, let's talk about definitions. How would you define the term gig worker? Gig worker is a term that has became popular, I would say, around the uh, 2000s. And you define a worker that basically has different jobs to make up uh, one whole, uh, what we call a full-time job. So you have different arrangements with different uh, places uh, that get you to have an actual full-time salary. That's a gig worker. However, gig jobs are not new. They existed uh, in the construction industry. I mean, that's like the most classical gig job, having a construction job. Um, or in the acting business, in the music business, most musicians, most actors say, oh, I got a gig, right? And you know, together, eventually, they put together enough of a salary to make a living. So that's a gig worker, somebody who doesn't work for one employer, doesn't have one full-time job, but has different arrangements with different uh, uh, employers to make a one full-time job. It seems like these days, gig workers applied most to folks who drive for Uber or Lyft. Uh, what what other type of jobs, you mentioned construction, but what other type of jobs would fit into that gig worker category today? Actually, we have a lot of gig workers on the uh, on the app development side of the app work economy. A lot of computer programmers, a lot of uh, video game designers, um, a lot of people who work in the tech side of 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 the industry are currently de uh, defined as uh, gig workers. So, uh, going back to the definition, uh, when our economy changed in the two thousands. Uh, when we had this switch in the in the in the tech industry, and in the growth in in temporary workers arrangements, that's when gig jobs became more common. They also became common in the healthcare industry. A lot of uh, nurses, like a lot of 
uh, even homecare workers or, or people who are, you know, who end up uh, working in the care economy also became defined as give workers, even though in many cases they were working for the same employer over and over again. So the abuse of the term gig economy, I will say exploded in the 2000s. We think of a gig worker as someone who works for Uber, but that's not the only gig worker. Well, let's talk now about the rule. Uh, what, what's the president's labor department proposing with respect to gig workers? So the reason why it became common to be called a gig worker in the 2000s is that there was there's not one definition of when a, um, an employee is a full-time or not a full-time worker. So what the new rule does is define the instances in which a worker can be considered an independent contractor. An independent contractor is somebody who has total control of his working conditions, who is able to set his own wages and times of work, and is in total uh, control of when and how he, he works. That should be an independent contractor. However, we didn't have a, a federal definition of that, and, 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 and corporations were able to basically say, well, I don't want to offer a full-time employment to somebody, or, or I just want, I just need somebody for six months, or I don't want to commit to a full-time employment. And then they just started to randomly decide uh, assigning uh, independent contractor arrangement to those employers. The problem comes that if you are an independent contractor, you are not protected on the Federal Labor Standards Act, which is the FLSA. And the FLSA uh, is a, is defines the basic labor rights for any worker, which is health and safety on the job. Uh, that's how you um, qualify for um, wage and hour protections. That's how you qualify for social security protections and for unemployment insurance. Those are basic protections. So most low wage workers, right? Most gig workers right now basically are not in control of their own working conditions. They don't define their own wages. They don't get to determine when and how they work. Yet they are determined to be independent contractors. So the so what corporations like Uber and Lyft did was to basically use the lack of a rule to their benefit to get rid of the the liability of their employment model. So the gig the the independent contractor loose definition became an employment model for Uber and Lyft that basically allows them to eliminate their responsibility as employers which is to make sure that you have health and safety on the job, is to make sure that you get paid a minimum wage, and that after 40 hours in the in workplace, you get overtime, and it gets rid of the responsibility to contribute to unemployment insurance uh, or any other forms of social um, insurance programs like workers' compensation in terms of an accident. So that is what the rule basically does now. It basically says if an employee doesn't have control of his hours of work, doesn't have control of his compensation, he doesn't have control of his working conditions, he cannot be defined as an independent contractor. It is, it has to be defined as an employee. I know that employers 
in the gig economy are completely bent out of shape about this proposed rule and are opposing it. Why are they so uh, against the rule? They against the rule because it has become part of their business model. To The business model is to eliminate their responsibility as employers and turn it over to the employee itself. So and rather than their business model being part of a long-term employment commitment to the employee, now they're basically saying, I don't want any liability for any of, any of the employment responsibilities. And that is not good for the for our economy, it's not good for workers, that you are basically saying, we want to have your labor, but we don't want to have any responsibility for uh, for your working conditions and your compensation. So that's what they've been that achieved. And, and, their, and their profit model for a company like Uber, remember Uber and Lyft, they're claiming that they're making money, yet the investors are still investing money. Um, their stock went down during the change of the rule because the stockholders value of the company is that they don't have a long-term commitment to workers. Workers are disposable in this, in this model. So, but that's not good for workers because what we saw during the pandemic is that we do have a lot of precarity in the workforce. A lot of workers are in, are in the, don't have long-term employment anymore. And what happened during the pandemic is that there were not there were not enough social protections to help them um, survive during during the pandemic, and that's how we ended up with the federal uh, pandemic relief, which was you know which was an addition uh, to what we should have had. Uh, let's remember that many states did sue Uber and Lyft for, for failing to pay for unemployment insurance because a lot of Uber and Lyft workers did file for unemployment insurance during the pandemic and a lot of states paid them uh, because they could prove that they had been working for Uber and Lyft uh, for more than 40 hours and that they were actually almost full-time employees of Uber, but Uber was still claiming that they weren't and that they weren't liable for unemployment insurance uh, at that point. So the states are actually crawling back and, and demanding that Uber actually changes its employment model and actually recognizes that they actually do have a long-term uh, engagement with, their, with the workers that, they, that they're um, connected to. In addition to the Fair Labor Standards Act, if uh, the rules passed and these workers are now classified as employees instead of independent contractors, that would also give them greater protections under the National Labor Relations Act, wouldn't it? Allowing them to to organize more easily as employees, since the, that act applies to employees and not independent contractors as well. Isn't that right? Yes. The, and as, as employees, most workers are entitled, are protected under the NLRA. And they, they might be able to join a union. However, the changing of the rule doesn't even address uh, the issue of unionization for these workers. The only thing the rule does is create a clear rule across the state lines that says that these are the minimum standards that are for a worker to be considered an independent contractor. Minimum standards across all our 50, uh, 51, uh, 50 states and plus our territories. So that is what the only thing it does. States still have to evaluate you know, each employer designation, right? 
Um, all, some states have even higher standards for defining uh, independent contractor, like California has the ABC rule, New York State has the ABC rule in New Jersey. Their standards are higher. So the new rule is not, it's a basic change in the, in the, in the, in the definition. It's not what unions would like to see, which is more closely to California or New York State or New Jersey, but at least it, it evens the playing field uh, for, um, for clarifying that if you are not making your own choices on your hours of work or not have any vested personal interest in the company or in the business model, that you cannot be called an independent contractor, uh, or that you don't spend all, you know, or that you don't make so you don't make your own choices on that, on how and when do you work. So um, I want to clarify that because this is not like earth shattering. It's not. It's not like we are changing the dynamics for gig workers here. Uh, the you know we are basically saying there's these are basic definitions. States can do more. Other uh, states can pass higher standards for that definition. But this is a good thing because we at least are, are raising the bottom for this workforce. My understanding is that the rule is still in the comment period. So what, what happens next for its consideration? The rules are still on the comment period. Uh, the Labor Department will review the comments and, uh, and make a determination uh, and, and, and adopt it. The, the Biden administration and the Secretary of Labor, Matty Walsh, has been very supportive of this rule. So we expect that the rule go into effect and, and that we can have an actual clarity on how employers can uh, make this determination. Also remember though, this rule is the, is the same rule that we had in place during the Obama years. So, uh, and it was rescinded by the Trump administration. So it's, you know, while some employers are asking for is actually some clarity, um, you know, not every employer wants to be a bad employer. I think that some employers want to do the right thing. What they're asking for is for clarity and for stability. They don't want this rule to keep going back and forth because if you're a good employer and you want to have a business model that supports your employees. You want to have, be, have consistency and, and you want your competition to follow the same rules. Even Uber has said that it, they just wanted to be clear and stable moving forward. So I think we're going to see it. And um, and because Mary, Secretary of Labor, Mary Walsh, has expressed support for it. And you know, there's some corporations who don't like it, but I think we will see a clarity on the definition of who is an independent contractor and who's not. In the time we have left, Tell our listeners about the Worker Institute and the good work you do there. The Worker Institute is part of the School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. We are researchers uh, in the world of work, and we are focused on doing applied research, policy innovation, education, and training on issues impacting workers in today's workplaces. We have been uh, doing research and policy innovation in the area of the gig economy, in the precarious workforce and, and immigrant rights for the last uh, 10 years. And we, and we are looking forward to, to continuing to work with labor unions, uh, worker advocates, 
academics who care about workers' rights to advance collective bargaining power for workers in the United States. Very good. Dr. Patricia Campos Medina, Executive Director of the Worker Institute, ILR Cornell University. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Follow us and visit our website. And you can follow me at Dr. Campos Medina on Twitter and on Facebook. Working at this job is dirty and dangerous and I'm taking risks anyway. Oh, if I had the time and the proper equipment, I could do my job safely each day. Everybody here says they're sick with the safety and I'm not here to say that they lie. I'm saying we just come to work here. We don't come to die. Now I don't want your chemicals clouding my brain. I want That was Ann Feeney with, We Just Come to Work Here, We Don't Come to Die. Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman, journeyman wireman of IBEW Local 124. For me at age six, this was the first time that I ever had seen people with disabilities like myself fighting for their rights. I realized these people with disabilities are fighting for their right to be acknowledged and accepted, and I can too. And I want to be a part of that. Those were the words of Jennifer Keelan Chaffins about her participation in the wave of activism led by ADAPT, which culminated in the 1990 Capitol Crawl for Disability Rights, supporting the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Let's have some real talk about disability here. Currently, according to the CDC, 26% of Americans have at least one disability. 14% of Americans have a serious disability affecting their mobility. 11% of Americans have a disability that seriously affects their cognition. 6% have a disability that seriously impairs their hearing. And 5% have a disability seriously, with their, uh, seriously affecting their vision, even with correction. And many of these people are still trying to make their way the best they can in the workforce. Great advancements don't generally come from nowhere. They generally come from a concerted movement of people organizing to win them. The 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act was no exception. In fact, disability activism started in the United States way back in the 19th century. 
Previous activism had seen great strides in gaining greater civil rights for disabled people by increasing access to transportation, housing, education, and federal buildings. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973 particularly had set an important legal precedent by establishing disability as a protected category. With two years of disability activism under her belt already, Jennifer Keelan Chaffins had arrived in Washington, D.C. and wanted to participate in the week of activism surrounding the passage of the ADA, a campaign which had been dubbed Wheels of Justice. On March 12, 1990, she and about 700 others participated in a march from the White House to the state capitol. When they arrived, they listened to fiery speeches and chanted encouraging slogans. All at once, activists spontaneously decided to abandon their wheelchairs and other walking aids and physically crawl up the 78 marble capitol building steps. Some adults were concerned about Jennifer, who was then eight years old, participating and even wanted to stop her. But ADAPT founder Reverend Wade Blank said if she wanted to do it, she should do it. So Jennifer climbed out of her wheelchair and began the arduous climb up the steps of the U.S. Capitol building with about 100 other disabled people. The photographs of the event are heart-wrenching and dramatic, especially those of little Jennifer. In the most graphic way possible, they collectively demonstrated the difficulties they face on a daily basis when buildings are not designed with accessibility in mind. The next day, in a further act of civil disobedience, Jennifer's mom got arrested with 104 other people. We all pretended like we were going to the tour, Cynthia Keelan says. Once we got everybody up into the Capitol Rotunda, then we all sat down or stood there and said we want to meet with the Speaker of the House. Their efforts were a success. The Americans with Disabilities Act National Network describes the 1990 Act as a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, and all public and private places that are open to the general public. The purpose of the law is to make sure that people with disabilities have the same rights and opportunities as everybody else. The Act is divided into five titles based upon area of public life, with Title I being employment. According to the ADANN, again, Title I helps people with disabilities access the same employment opportunities and benefits available to people without disabilities, applies to employers with 15 or more employees, requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations to qualified applicants or employees. A reasonable accommodation is a change that accommodates employees with disabilities so they can do the job without causing the employer undue hardship, which is too much difficulty or expense. Defines disability, establishes guidelines for the reasonable accommodation process, and addresses medical examinations and inquiries. Regulated and enforced by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Disability activism continues to this day, as does work by the previously mentioned organization, ADAPT. In 2017, they organized further protests surrounding cuts to Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. We still have so far to go. At these protests, police physically removed protesters from their wheelchairs and carried them off rather than respectfully pushing them away. I hope you have enjoyed the story of the 1990 Capitol Crawl and the struggle for increased civil rights for disabled Americans. Have a great evening, everyone. And that was Ariana with Remember Our Struggle. And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, I'm Judy Ansel. Our calendar is posted on our Facebook page where you can find some of the links that I will mention. Labor Notes, Secrets of a Successful Organizer, Virtual Classes on Beating Apathy, Assembling Your Dream Team, Turning an Issue into a Campaign. They start tonight at at 6.30, already started, and repeat on January 19th and the 26th. Go to labornotes.org and look for events to register. This is for DOTS. 
Tonight at the commission meeting of the Unified Government, support the mayor Thursday, that's tonight, 7 p.m., 701 North 7th Street, Kansas City, Kansas. The Unitarian Universalist Forum, the road for, to hope for Jackson County children with Anne, <coughs> Anne Mesley and our own Judy Morgan. Sunday, January 15th, 9.30 a.m., Unitarian Universalist Church, 4501 Walnut, Kansas City, Conover Hall. <clears throat> this is a hybrid event. There's an online link. If you go to allsoulskc.org, you can find it. There are, a number, <clears throat> there are a number of Martin Luther King Day events going on this weekend and Monday. Uh, the Kansas City, Kansas event will be at 11 a.m. at Memorial Hall. The Southern Christian Leadership Council annual KIND event, King event, sorry, uh, this year on reparations is Monday at 4.30 p.m. at Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church, 2310 East Linwood Boulevard. For more events, go to the Kansas City Star webpage and search for MLK events. And WICO Legislative Lunch and Learn, January 21st, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Oak Ridge Missionary Baptist Church Family Life Center, 9301 Parallel Parkway. It's both in-person or live-streamed. And <clears throat> again, you can go to the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page to get a link. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. Uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> have teachers from Kaufman Charter School talk about their organizing campaign and something else to be announced. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to our engineer, Stephen Hill, who we are bidding a fond farewell to and wish best wishes for his new job. And stay tuned for the Thursday night special. It's Shots in the Night Radio Theater. And also, please fill out the listener survey at kkfi.org and tell us your favorite shows. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us, too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our because we are the working class and place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra I'd pull strings and through political Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. You're listening to 90.1